following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So this is going to be one of those Sundays that uh, whatever we do, it's going to be a, be a tough day. And uh, as we think about today and as we think about the scriptures, I guess um, to me one of the things that impacts me the most is the fact that we are transformed and renewed on a day-to-day basis by the things that God is doing in our lives. Whether we be going through good times or bad times, God is working in our lives and transforming us on a day-to-day basis. And that's an amazing thing that we can experience. And it's interesting that when we think about that, that we're told that in our society today that uh, our religion, our beliefs, actually are personal, they're just our own, and that they don't actually affect anything else that we do. In fact, they go so, so far as to say that we are to separate the things that we believe from the other parts of our lives, so that we're not to take our faith into our workplace, for most of us. We're not to take it into our schools or into our universities, and it's not a part of the society that we are involved in. Our faith is simply personal, it's private, it doesn't affect anything else that we do. But when we consider the public world around us, think about some of the things that are going on. Think about government. Think about the society as a whole. And even though we're told that our faith doesn't affect those things, think about some of the things that are going on in the public space at the moment. Consider some of the moral and social issues that we are wrestling with as a society. Things like uh, discussion around marriage and sexuality. What does that mean? What about things around race and culture and where all of that fits together or doesn't fit together? What about the value of human life and human life when it starts, when it ends, all of those sorts of things? And those are all issues that we're debating in our society. And the reality is I don't know how we can debate and discuss those things unless our faith speaks into those particular things. It is there, it has to be so important in all that we do. Our faith should impact those things. It should challenge the way we think and act about those particular issues. It's interesting that if you think about uh, even back in uh, New Testament times, they were very much the same sort of idea. It was like you could practice your religion and do what your religion required you to do, but your religion didn't affect your personal morality or the way that you lived your lives. And it seems that for many of us today that we're living lives in those same sorts of ways. But the reality is that when a person believes, it should actually change the things that they do. It should actually change the way they act and the way that they think. I, uh, I love the theologian, um, which we're just going to put up here, um, you might be familiar with him, Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, and probably can't read it properly, but, but I'll read it to you, and, and this is what it says. It says, uh, how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? I didn't make any. See, in order to improve oneself, one must have some idea of what's good. That implies certain values. But as we all know, values are relative. Every system of belief is equally valid, 
and we need to tolerate diversity. Virtue isn't better than vice, it's just different. And then they respond, I don't know if I can tolerate that much tolerance. I refuse to be victimised by the notions of virtuous behaviour. <laughs> and even though it's done in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way, you can see that it begins to deal with the issues that we're, we're working with here, is the fact that do, do the things that we believe affect the way that we live our lives? And if so, in what way do they do that? The reality is that the Christian faith brought a whole new way of thinking in society, and not just a way of thinking in society, but a way of acting in society. So whether the, it was the pagan society in New Testament times or modern society today in the 21st century, our faith should affect our actions and the things that we do broadly within society. Faith in Christ means being united with Christ and we share in his life through our salvation, then we must follow him on a day-to-day basis and our lives are affected accordingly. The pattern throughout the, the uh, New Testament, if we, if we were to look through the New Testament, is the fact that we're told things about God and what to believe about God, and then that follows from there in terms of the things that we're to do, the actions that are to follow. And in fact, uh, lots of the, the epistles that uh, particularly the Apostle Paul wrote, you could just about divide them down the middle, where he tell, tells us about the doctrine, the things that we believe about God, and then the second half is talking about how we act accordingly. The reality is, is that being a Christian is, isn't just thinking the right way, it's actually about being the right sort of person and acting the right way as well. So the next uh, diagram that I've got up there is, is one that we, many of us will be familiar with, but I think it talks really clearly to the fact that as far as we're concerned as Christians, we don't just want to know the right stuff, as important as that is, but we also want to be the right person that God wants us to be, and we also want to do the right thing as well. And it's so critical that we understand it. So really, we think about the being. This is our identity, who we are in Christ. If we think about the, the knowing uh, side of things, it's the things that we learn about from the scriptures, uh, from, from Christian writings, those sorts of things. Uh, it tells us the truth about God, who God is. And then the doing part's our practice. How do we go about doing those things based upon the things that we know from the Word? So with that in mind, I want us to turn in our Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 3. And um, I want to read through, um, starting from verse 1. And this is what it says. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with God, with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever things belong to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge and the image of the Creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Cilician, slave or free, but Christ is all 
and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's interesting that as we look at this particular uh, passage here, we can see a number of things. So the first few verses really talk about that whole idea of understanding where we are as Christians, our position in Christ. And then following on from that, it talks about the fact of how we are to live according to that. Firstly, it talks about what we're not to do, and then it talks about what we are to do. So if we think about these few verses here, verses 1 to 4 initially, it talks about these things. It talks about the fact we've died in Christ, talks about we've been raised with Christ, and one day we will be with Christ in glory. And because of this, our focus changes from the things of earth to the things of God. So what I want to do is I want to do a quick theology lesson, and I want to put up some, uh, some words up there, some big theological terms. So if you put up the next slide... So here's the theology lesson for the day. And these are talked about in verses 1 to 4 of of Colossians chapter 3. Firstly, we see the fact that we are, the theological term is justified. This is where God makes us right with him. So it's an act that God pardons us as sinners. He accepts us as just. And we are permanently in a relationship with God. This justifying sentence is God's gift of righteousness to us. He has bestowed upon us his righteousness because of what Christ has done. And the reality is this is what happens to us when we become believers. And regardless of what happens from that particular point, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are righteous in our standing before God, and that never changes. That's the hope that we have as Christians. You know, when Reuben talked before, he talked about the fact that we have hope as Christians. We know for sure where we will be one day. And the reason we know these things is because of what Jesus Christ has done for each one of us. He died upon the cross for our sins. He was raised again to new life. And therefore, we know that we can enjoy newness of life in him. The final part there is what's called glorification. That's eventually, one day, we will be in the presence of God and our sins will be completely removed. And this is the final stage of our salvation. When we die or when the Lord comes, we will be in his presence and these things will no longer be. Sin will be removed and we will no longer have to deal with the issues of sin. But the bit in between is the bit that these verses talk about quite a bit uh, in Colossians chapter 3. And that's the whole process of sanctification. That's that process of, on a day-to-day basis, 
we become more and more like Jesus Christ. And we need to see that we grow and we continue to mature and to become the people that God wants us to be. It's worth noting here that our hearts and our mind are focused on the things above. That's what it says there in verse 4. But it doesn't mean that we think only about heaven. I remember as a, as a new Christian, somebody uh, used the phrase to me, um, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Um, and you read this passage and you think, well, I'm supposed to focus upon the things in heaven. I think what it's referring to here is being focused upon heaven more in, the, in terms of looking towards the future and the place that we will be. So it's not spending our entire mind thinking about heaven and what it's like in heaven and stuff like that. It's more living our lives in view of where one day we will be in the presence of God. It's a bit like that passage that you may be familiar with in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where it talks about Jesus, and it talks about the fact that we are to run the race, and we are to run the race with our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So I think here when it's talking about the fact that our our minds and our hearts are focused upon the things of heaven, upon the things of Jesus. It's more in that sense, that now as believers, we focus our actions and our thinking like we're running the race. We can see Jesus there in the distance, and we move towards Jesus. We focus our thinking upon Jesus and upon those sorts of things, and that's the way that we are to be living our lives, focused upon Jesus focused upon setting our hearts and our minds on the things of Jesus, the things that are above. So as part of that process, you'll see there, and it starts in verse 5 of this passage in Colossians uh, chapter 3, is it talks about the idea of things that we are to leave behind as believers and things that we're to pick up as believers. Uh, and the terminology that's used there is the terminology of, of clothing. It actually uses the word we are to clothe ourselves in certain ways. So it says we're to put off the old clothes and get rid of them and put on the new clothes of righteousness. And that's the picture, that's the illustration that is used there. And Paul is specifically here looking at our behavior, about the things that we do as Christians. But it's important when we think about this to understand what it means. Paul was very much concerned about our behavior. He wanted to distinguish between right and wrong. He wanted to make sure that we understood what right behavior was and what wrong behavior was. He wanted us to develop good moral character, and that was important for us as Christians. Uh, he said that sinful conduct would ultimately face the wrath of God, and we needed to be aware of the fact that the wrath of God was going to come upon those that were living sinful lives. Christ reconciled us in his body to present us before God to be holy and blameless in his sight. But the reality is, and this is where we need to be careful as, as Christians, is that our holiness doesn't come about by giving a list of things we can and can't do. Our holiness doesn't come about by a futile attempt to comply with a list of observations and taboos. Our holiness is not measured by the things we do or don't do, it comes from being in Christ, our relationship with Christ. The fact that we have died to sin and now been raised in Christ is what is important here. And we need to see that those are the things that are most significant here. So in terms of our behavior, right and wrong is important, 
but it comes through our relationship with Christ and the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. He's now seated at the right hand of God. And with this confidence assurance, we can now live the life that he wants us to live. So as I said, there's not a passage here of a list of do's and don'ts. Um, I'm not going to give you 10 things you have to put aside and 12 things you have to do to be holy and righteous before God. You can read through some of the examples that are there. It does talk about immorality. It does talk about lust and evil desires. However, the key thing there, I think, is the fact that talks about these things are simply forms of idolatry, that they are things that pull us away from God. So you may be able to look at that list there and say, well, that's okay, I don't do any of those things, so therefore I'm okay. I don't think the point of the passage there is to outline every possible sin that you could or couldn't commit. It's more talking about the fact of our relationship with Christ is what's most important, and that anything that draws us away from God becomes a form of idolatry, and that's what we need to be concerned about. So the danger of a text like this is always that we turn it into a program of requirements. This is not what we're talking about here. It's not a program of requirements. By all means, read the list there. And if there are those sins in your life that you need to deal with, then by all means, through the power of Christ, deal with them. But the most important thing is our relationship with Christ. You know, a farmer once said, what comes up when the bucket is, is usually what's down in the well. So when you pull something out of the well... What's in the bucket is actually what's in the well. So no somber list of prohibitions will ever change our character, but they may suppress the ways that we overtly express them. The inner wickedness remains and will probably express itself covertly or publicly in ways that may or may not be acceptable. The only solution is to change what is down in the well. Changing what is in the well, and that's our very souls. And that's the work of Christ. That's what we see here in, in Verses 1 to 4, we have been died with Christ, we have raised with Christ, so therefore we are being transformed inwardly in the things that are going on. We now have a life that God is able to use, and the sin problem has been dealt with. We have been raised with Christ, we have been renewed by Christ, and we're now able to live in a way that is going to be pleasing to Christ. One of the things I just want to uh, touch on really briefly is that it talks about the fact that, the, that those that continue to practice uh, sin will experience the wrath of God. And it's something that we probably don't want to talk about a whole lot. It's something that, in fact, as I was preparing for this, I thought, oh, well, perhaps I wouldn't even bother talking about that particular topic because it's not a particularly uh, nice topic to talk about. Um, and I found some figures here that I'll, that I'll put up here in terms of people's responses to this whole topic of the wrath of God. Hopefully they're out there. There you go. Uh, when people did a survey of uh, those that were mature in Christ, what they believed about God, it'd be interesting to take the same sort of survey here, wouldn't it? So in terms of things like a forgiving God, a loving God, we are quite comfortable with those sorts of things. But when it comes to some of the other attributes of God, like being judging or punishing those that do wrong, we're not quite so keen about some of those sorts of things. But the reality is, many people tend to treat sin as something that is to be dreaded only if it's detected. If things are detected, then they become a problem. But if we don't detect sin, then it's not a problem. 
But that's actually not the, the issue there. If you were to think about sin as like a cancer that grows out of control and destroys other healthy parts of the body, the cancer's the deadly thing, not the detection of it. And so I think for many of us, we tend to think, well, people don't know about my sins, so therefore it's not really an issue, it's not really sin. It's only if people know about it that becomes an issue. You know, only after cancer has been diagnosed can the treatment begin. The problem comes when it goes undiscovered and untreated. Like cancer, sin carries its own destructive forces. It's something that ruins our lives. It distorts and destroys our human relationships as well as our relationships with God. And so in the same way, we need to see that God is there, he's aware of our sin, and ultimately our sin will be punished. But we need to see that God's word revealing our sin is what we need to do to have a to move towards a transformed life. How about you think about the example of the parable son, of the, the prodigal son, sorry. Parable of the prodigal son. When the son informed his father that he wanted to depart with inheritance, the father did not put him under 24-hour-a-day surveillance, put a guard on his door, and keep him home to prevent him from ruining his life. He didn't do that much as uh, probably some of us as, uh, as fathers would be tempted to take that particular approach. But he allowed his son to leave his home and to go and do what he wanted to do. The reality is the boy didn't want what his father wanted or his father's ways, and there was nothing that he could do to stop him or to obey him and make him a loving son. He let him have the freedom, even if it led him to the pigsty. And in that, he finally did snap and did turn around and come back to the Father. And I think in the same way, that's how God treats us. At times, he gives us the freedom to be able to go and do those things that he knows that we shouldn't do. And perhaps deep down inside, we know that we shouldn't do. But like the prodigal son, the door's always open. God is always happy to have us back. So we need to see that that is what's going on here, that God will always have us back. He will always allow us to come back to himself. So as believers, we are told to put away the old things. We're to put away the old things and move on. And in the set, in, starting from verse 12, it talks about the fact of what our behavior should look like. So it talks about the things that we're to put aside, and then it says these are the things that we're to put on. So we are now to live a different sort of life. And again, it gives some examples in that particular passage of some of the sorts of characteristics of what it means to live a godly life. It talks about things like compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness, all of those sorts of things. The reality is that when we become joined with Christ, there is a new foundation, things have changed, and we now have a new behavior. When Christ becomes our life, we die to sin and our motivation to sin is changed and our motivation is now to live a holy life. Christ puts us under uh, an, a new standard, a new measure, and he wants us to be the people that he would have us to be. And ultimately, and, and I guess this is the challenging part in that particular passage there, is it talks about there, as it says the fact that ultimately what he's concerned about um, in verse 14, it says, and over all these virtues put on love. So ultimately, 
even though there are specific actions that he mentions in this passage here, the underlying message that we are to be focused on as believers is the message of love. Think about this familiar passage in Matthew 22. It says this, Love the Lord your God with all your passions and prayers and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list, but there is a second to sit alongside it. Love others as well as you love yourself. These two commandments are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophet hangs on them. So what he's saying here is he's given us some examples of the sorts of things that our behaviour should be as Christians, but ultimately this passage here talks about what is most important, is that idea of love that comes from God, our love towards God and our love to others as well. For example, a tree does not produce fruit by an act of parliament or by your desire for it to produce fruit. By nature, a good fruit tree will produce good fruit. In the same way with us, our nature has now changed. So now that we have transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we should now be producing the good fruit because that is our new nature in Christ. So Paul doesn't give us a detailed list of all these sorts of things we should do. Ultimately, living a life pleasing to God comes because we have put on Jesus Christ rather than because of anything else. Godly living comes as a result of putting off the old and putting on the new. This next quote up there um, is gone. Um, uh, it says this, um, In the gospel, the call to obedience is because one has already been saved and created anew. While in the law, by contrast, it is in order that one may become so. So in other words, now we have become new in Christ, we now want to be obedient and do the thing God wants us to do. It's not so we can become right with God, it's because we are right with God, we want to do these things, and through his spirit we're able to do these sorts of things. And the last couple of uh, verses uh, that we're looking at there, in verses 15 through 17, talks about this whole idea of, uh, of worship and our response to Christ as worshippers. Worship is our response to what God has done and continues to do in us. It shapes our faith and it makes us meaningful on a day-to-day life. The presence of Christ and our joining together with others and offering prayers, songs, establishes strength in our faith. Our worship provides guidance in our lives in hearing the word of God and brings to an awareness the needs of others in our prayers and presents the opportunity for expressing our repentance. And as a church family today, we gather corporately to worship. And uh, because of what's been going on in the life of our church, we are able to pray for those that are suffering at this particular time. At other times, like when we do baby dedications or baptism and stuff like that, we're able to rejoice and worship God through those things. But at times, our coming together is in terms of our lament as a church community as well as our praise and celebration as a church community. And it's interesting, in, in uh, verse 16, he talks about basically two things. He talks about teaching and admonishing through the word of Christ and singing praises. So Paul affirms that Christ 
is among all of us through the ministry of the word. We rely upon God's word, God's revelation to be able to worship God. And that's why for us as a church community, every week we open the word together because the word from God and the words that we can share with each other is a way that we can worship God and we can grow and mature in our faith with God. And that's important that we do that. And I think we often can get carried away with uh, some of the worship things. And often it may be that we get the impression that the, uh, the chief purpose of God is to glorify humans rather than vice versa. But worship is not about us, it's about God. The word is God's word, the wisdom is God's wisdom, and that we are to focus upon God alone. And that's where our focus is as we come and gather as God's people. Worship that centers on the word of Christ should lead to a more mature faith. And as Christians, we grow and we mature in our faith. And secondly, it talks about singing praises. Look at, the, look at what it talks about there in terms of singing praises. It talks about a variety of different ways that we can sing our praise. Christian worship is really marked by joy and gratitude, but at times it's also marked by lament as well, that we can come and that we can exalt Christ for who he is. Christians are not called to be happy all of the time. And worship that ignores the travails and the difficulties and the challenges of life um, often portray our faith as being shallow and superficial. The reality is at times as Christians, our life is hard. And when we gather corporately together, we have the opportunity to be able to recognize that as well. Life does not always come up roses. And our worship should acknowledge that. God is God even in the gloom and the pain and the suffering and the failures. Paul says that they sing psalms. And if you were to look at the Old Testament psalms as models, a number of those psalms are psalms of lament. When the psalmist cries out to God, in fact, at times the psalmist literally shakes his fist in the face of God and says, why God? Why do you do these things? And the reality is, as a church community, we can come and we can do these sorts of things. And today, um, as we uh, do communion together, uh, Nate and Phil are going to come and sing a song to us, which talks about some of those sorts of things, more from the sense of uh, lament and more from the sense of, God, where are you? And that's okay. As Christians, we can do that. We can come together and that we can worship God even through the difficult times. Our worship should reflect the good news that we have been redeemed and it should reflect our greatest gratitude for God and what he has done. The letters to Paul, which are covered in joy, also talk about the fact that faith is there even in the midst of difficulties and trials and challenges. But we are still to be worshipping God. And again, it goes back to what he has done for us. The fact that he died upon the cross and has raised to newness of life. And one of the ways that we worship God is as we celebrate communion together. And we're going to uh, be able to do that now. This is a time that we can remember that God did find us when He chose to find us. When we were down at our lowest point, he found us and we're able to turn and to follow God and to 
be able to worship God today. In the midst of all of the difficult circumstances, pain and hurt, we know that God is there and that there is light at the end of the tunnel. God has raised us to new life and we're able to put aside the old ways of life. And so as today, as you take uh, the, the bread and take the cup, remember that it is talking about what Christ has done for us as believers. Acknowledge the salvation that you have. Thank God for the joyful things that he has given to each one of us. But also, don't be afraid to lament as well, to ask God the tough questions about why do these things happen and where were you when I didn't think that you were there. But the fact that we can celebrate communion together shows us so clearly that we have been redeemed and that we do have a new life and that we can live a life that God wants us to live because of Christ's death upon the cross. So please join with me and take communion together and remember what Christ has done for each one of us. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.